Hello. Thank you for tuning in to episode 13 of Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future. I'm Reed Omery, and this month I'm sitting down with Dr. Kevin Ward. Kevin is Professor of Emergency Medicine and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Michigan. He serves as the Executive Director of the Michigan Center for Integrative Research and Critical Care. His interests include developing programs that encourage high-risk innovation through strategic, integrative, and disciplined collaborations across medicine, engineering, information sciences, and industry. He really is a true advocate for promoting true solutions for unmet needs. Welcome, Kevin. So glad that you're here. Reed, thanks for the invitation. Kevin, can you please share with us, how did you first get started in innovation? Sure. Well, Reed, I'm a, an emergency physician by training. By very nature, I see a lot of things. I interact with a lot of specialties. Uh, emergency medicine, like radiology, is really integrated. We have an opportunity, again, to sort of collaborate, and we need services uh, from lots of different specialties to meet the needs of the patients. So I've been practicing for about 30 years, but a particular incident occurred almost 21 years ago, shortly after the birth of my second child, my son. My wife was at home, and I was actually running late to work that day. And I uh, heard my wife shout out from the upstairs bedroom that she was bleeding. And so I thought it was just a little postpartum bleeding. And it would, so I just told her, I said, sit down, it'll stop. And kind of, no, this is like a lot of bleeding. And so I finally went upstairs and she was almost unconscious. And come to find out, she had a rare episode of uterine bleeding called, caused by a uterine arteriovenous malformation. So the paramedics got called, and, you know, there was, I felt powerless. There was really nothing I could do. And here I'm an emergency physician, and I really can't do anything, right? So fortunately, we live uh, a short distance from a trauma center, and we get her there, and 40 units of blood later, and wow. six hours of surgery... We finally get it to, to stop. We, we lose the vital organ of the uterus, which is okay. My wife, she did great. Her only uh, challenge now is she's still married uh, to me, but uh, <laughs> family is all great. But I, I sort of look back upon that as a, my goodness, we, we have to do better than that. And in my 30 years of practice, I really realized that I have no newer tools now that I did 30 years ago to help save someone's life. So we really don't have any game changers. And I asked myself, really, why is that? Why are we settling for that? There are great advances in cancer and, and other disease processes, but why not for emergency medicine and critical care? So I've asked that question to thousands of people around the world. And I get very few answers about, yeah, can't you remember a technology X, Y, Z that are making total game-changing differences? And so that was really launched my journey into what is it that we can do in the great academic medical centers, at least for emergency medicine and critical illness and injury, and then learning some lessons about how to scale that to other areas of medicine as well. Well, with the fear and scariness of that event, how did that alter the course of your career? For me, it was like, so around that time, shortly after that time, we ended up moving from the location I was at the time to a new training program at the Medical College of Virginia. Around that time, 9-11 happened. And uh, so, you know, it was one thing after another. And uh, we started to see these horrible injuries from war that we'd never experienced before because of the improvised explosive devices. And Richmond sort of sits in the middle of the industrial complex. We span the Maryland area to, to North Carolina. 
and I got a visit from uh, Joint Special Operation Training Medical Center from Fort Bragg, and they wanted to set up a special forces training program to train special operation combat medics because there was a bigger reliance on special operation forces. And so I got to understand sort of what their needs were, and I said, my goodness, this is like science fiction. Like the, the things that we need to save lives here and, and learn those lessons and bring them back to the civilian world are science fiction. And we can't solve it just within the house of medicine itself. This is gonna require high risk, high reward, team science. We're gonna have to get extra eyes on this from people outside the house of medicine, so engineers, uh, data scientists. And again, those were propelling, very uh, provocative, God and country type, come to the altar uh, realizations that the, the way we were doing research in the academic medical center just really had to change, at least where I was involved. That clearly changed your thinking, and it has, because of that, led you to do some incredible work. What were some of the barriers you found in academia along the way? We have to look at traditional incentives. So some of the barriers to sort of engage in research that's so high risk, you're not going to get it funded through normal channels, through the, the National Institutes of Health, for example or you're putting new teams together quickly that haven't worked together before. And in our case, one of the barriers was how do we integrate engineers and medical basic scientists in teams that talk different languages? We come from different tribes, right? You know, trying to get an engineer interested in your poster child of a disease can be challenging, it's intimidating. We don't talk math very well in medicine. Engineers think too much of clinicians. You know, we have too much power. We walk on water, or at least we think we do. Clinicians think engineers only make gadgets. So a lot of this is, is trying to become bilingual or trilingual and really incentivizing the team to stay with problem solving, especially in that critical early stage where the project's not properly capitalized. You know, you're, you don't have enough preliminary data to be competitive for a traditional grant. So those are real challenges on, on that end, all the way to trying to, you know, you're out of your swim lane a little bit. This is kind of high risk, you know, promotion and tenure prevent barriers. There's a whole notion of conflict of interest. Universities or uh, us as academics don't make and sell things directly to the consumer. So any innovation that is going to get implemented is going to require an industry partner. There was all this, you know, during my, you know, evolution in this space, there was all this, you know, maybe taboo about working with, with industry and, you know, using industry dollars and things like that. But in essence, new teams have to be formed, new incentives have to be in place to push things forward, especially when they're high risk. In academic medicine, do you differentiate between research and innovation? I don't, but that's been a major barrier. So I think we sort of differ fundamentally about what innovation means. I think people think, well, if you have an NIH grant, for example, which is sort of the common currency of research, you know, those are your research bona fides if you get an NIH grant. Well, if you have an NIH grant, it must be innovative. Decent people can disagree on, on different things, but again, if we, if we sort of look at it at a really high level view, you've, you've got, I love the NIH, they're responsible for a lot of good stuff, but $32 billion a year, okay, in investments. And we have to ask ourselves, are we really getting a return on investment? So what happens in academia when the NIH budget sort of tanks a little bit? What, what happens at Vanderbilt? 
heads are on fire. You know, you drop in rankings in the NIH and it's all hands on deck. The ship is going down. I never get a phone call from my family when we drop in the NIH rankings or move up. They say, hey man, I'm sorry. You guys drop. Now, if we drop in the football rankings yeah, or move they're, up, they're, yeah, I'm going no, to yeah, hear about yeah, it, right? Michigan for sure. Right. But the only, the only noise you hear is within the academic medical center. And I think, you know, what we do is sort of loss in translation. And I think innovation entrepreneurship is a great vehicle to explain to the public why that investment is so critical. But even on top of that, I'm not sure that we're using that investment in a really focused area to bring those aha moments uh, to keep them alive and then actually translate and transition them to the market where they're gonna have real impact. I have one colleague who's made the contrarian statement that there isn't any disease in the research related to that disease that wouldn't be improved with less funding. So the notion of if we constrain our resources, we actually then have to think a lot more clearly about the outcomes. Reed, that is just crazy talk. No, I totally <laughs> agree. And, and again, that's a great bounded way. So $32 billion, that's a lot of money. I would say we've got enough money. We have to re-engineer the way we use the money. So uh, what are the expected outcomes? How do we more rapidly de-risk the research uh, in such a way that it's set up for a transition to commercialization? So when you have less resources, Absolutely. I think you're going to realize significant efficiencies in how to use that. And I think that actually creates innovation itself. So you're going to have to look, take a look at the problem a little bit differently, uh, maximize the resources of your team. There's a catch-22 for many scientists because to engage in high-risk research, they need the funding to be able to do it because it's high-risk, it may not turn out. But often to try to get funded to conduct high-risk research itself is really risky. From a practical perspective, how do we balance that? Well, again, I think this goes back to the fundamental notion about the role of academic medical centers. So great academic medical centers like Vanderbilt and Michigan and others, you know, we all provide great care. The issue is, are we going to be transformative? I mean, we have to be transformative. It is an interesting problem. I do think re-engineering the incentives around bounding the problems, what the expectations are from the funding agencies, integrating those efforts with industry, for example, thinking about things like transitioning to SBIR and SCTR grants, for example, making those look more like the current currency of an R01 grant, for example, but with different expectations for what you get, really could be transformative. You might see people really looking at their science differently. So it's not that there may not be enough money. I think there's enough money. I think the catch here or the challenge is how to think about using the funding more strategically. So to be more efficient with the dollars that we do have and try to focus on where we might get the greatest outcomes. Exactly. You may have to pick and choose what the most important problems are, right? I mean, you can't know everything about everything before you learn something of value to move it forward to implementation. More team science would do it. So having more eyes on the problem, making sure we're asking the right questions, who the customers are, 
I mean, even at a very basic science level, I think that this can be done. I mean, the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing tool is a perfect example about how to recognize that's a fundamental discovery, but it was very rapidly transitioned to something that could be very, very powerful and you know, is now in several companies. Team science itself, if you are an early career faculty member, it, you're able to join a research group and contribute. The problem is, after several years, when you go up for promotion, a lot of the criteria for promotion at many academic medical centers is originality of your research. It's almost counterproductive to be part of a team where it's not clear that you are leading it. How dare you be just a team member? Because we are an institution that seeks originality. Yeah, well, I think innovation is a team sport. You know, I mean, again, one reason I know in my field in emergency medicine and critical care, the reason we hadn't made progress in 30 years is because we hadn't been working as teams, right? So we don't have team members across critical care specialties talking to each other, but worse than that, you're in your own little bubble, right? It's hard for you to see the aha moments. I mean, when we bring engineers into our environment, they say, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Who would have ever designed something like this? And some institutions, I mean, to be fair, even at my own institution, we did change promotion and tenure guidelines to value innovation and entrepreneurship, okay? So we've lowered one energy, uh, a little bit of the energy barrier to actually engage in that. We've recognized the importance of team science. Now, those are no-cost solution. Again, we're not saying take less money, submit less grants. We're saying think about things and engage in a different way to get more out of the effort. And let's transition how you think about your science at earlier stages to set you up for success for implementation or an innovation. Promotion and tenure in and of itself is one of the most entrepreneurial concepts there are. It's all about promoting you based on your work. That could be inherently viewed as a conflict, depending on what you're doing. You've got to get that next uh, study done, that next patient enrolled. But that it's an expected behavior that you are going to create knowledge, you're going to dispense that knowledge, you're going to bring notoriety to the university. P&T is an inherently natural, innovative, and entrepreneurship activity. Engaging in actual innovation and entrepreneurship from a product development standpoint or solution, there's, there should be no conflict. I like to think conflict of interest is more, it should be a convergence of interest. A convergence of interest. So sh shift the focus from conflict of interest to let's actively seek convergence of interest. That's right. I mean, there's not a, there's not a technology fairy who comes to Dr. Smith's lab and takes that idea and turns it into a product and leaves lots of money in the end. It doesn't happen that way. Inherent to, to, to innovation is risk. The great academic medical centers don't develop and sell things directly to the consumer, not even athletic apparel at Michigan. We're always going to rely on an industry partnership to move discoveries. So whether it's a therapeutic, a device, a diagnostics, digital health, our job is really to de-risk it, to understand the need, who the customer is, get it to a point where it can be successfully transitioned. And maybe that, that involves the, the innovator within the university who has to take, take a step outside into the university. That's where it kind of really gets uh, scary. Would you then explain it as the goal of academic medicine from an innovation standpoint is to discover and design and develop 
the product, and then it's industry's role to distribute it, to market it, to Well, we do all or... those things and, and actually to co-develop it at some point. I mean, lots of stuff that we launch from the great universities and academic medical centers has additional innovation added to it from industry. I don't, I look at it, I want to look at industry interactions as strategic partnerships. I would, I would love to see us play more about embedding industry in academic medical centers. And again, we're going to go back and hear whining and kicking and screaming that it's a conflict. It's not a conflict. This is a race against disease. Defense may win athletic championships. Innovation and entrepreneurship require total offense, you know, to beat a disease. And I would just say we're not doing good. I mean, in critical illness and injury, we've not made advances in sepsis. We've not made advances in traumatic brain injury. We've not made advances in cardiac arrest outcomes. And I could go on and on and on. And so, you know, people who would, who would criticize the, the, the approach, I would say, well, how's it working out for us now, right? I mean, we really kind of got to do something differently. And I, and I think part of this is raising a new generation of clinician scientists or the, the stuff that you're doing here is totally off the hook uh, in terms of changing uh, how we educate clinician scientists by bringing in talent, young talent that have their PhDs in applied sciences and fast-tracking them into medical school. They're going to think differently. So teaching medical school students and, um, and, and doing more teams with, with students from various disciplines and teaching them how to recognize problems. I mean, those are really low cost, but potentially high impact solutions. You just have to have people passionate like yourself who go out and make those things happen. As we start winding down, I, I'd like to ask your opinion about how research and development has changed over the decades with respect to industry and academia. If we go back to the mid 19 hundreds, classic Bell Labs era and the transistor. We had R&D occurring within Bell Labs that fundamentally changed how people lived, how they communicated, the electronics that developed out. of. Now that was out of Bell Labs. Many of those discoveries led to Nobel Prizes. A lot of industry, you know, now move, move forward to 2019, a lot of industry has pulled R&D out and has looked to academic medicine to generate that pipeline of initial discovery that they may partner with, they may take up, or something like that. Is the opposite something you're advocating? Instead of saying that industry might go back to Bell Labs and have R&D within it, should academic medicine think about having industry embedded in itself, having like a Bell Labs R&D with focused on industry within academics. I'm open to anything and everything. So I think that makes a lot of sense depending on where you're located and what your talent pool and what the local industry looks like. I think my basic argument is to aggressively explore strategic integration of efforts. That could be on-site, it could be in many, many different models, right? We have to make the most of the discovery. And again, you know, when I talked about team science among different disciplines, Expanding team science also means working with industry. A lot of smart people in industry that are not totally motivated by the dollar. I mean, it's really, it's a convergence of interest. I'm convinced that there's just, there are a lot of cures for a lot of things out there. They're just sitting in labs because 
faculty got exhausted. They just exhausted themselves and couldn't continue the effort and they just dropped it. One of the last things I'll say is I think game changers could be, I would love to see places like Vanderbilt and Michigan develop their own venture funds. You know, when we talk about the valley of death and lots of great ideas, I mean, we're, we're particularly, I think, challenged compared to the coast, the East Coast and the West Coast, where there's just lots of money. So I think intellectual capital is kind of evenly distributed across the country. But we need more coasts. We need a north coast. We need a gulf coast, you know, venture uh, scene. Um, I mean, the pushback from our institutions is that all good ideas get funded, and that's just divorced from reality. Again, closing this time gap from discovery and de-risking to transition, we would be, I think, much better off if, you know, I know we Michigan, in my opinion, would be better off if we also had a 200 million dollar venture vehicle that would would help jumpstart these good ideas. Again, externally managed, you know, having mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. regular conflict of interest and boundaries and all those sorts of things. But, you know, this is a race against disease, okay? A race against health. The market hates uncertainty. So, I mean, we're, we market looks like it's doing well right now, but you never know. And I think we have to mitigate risk and, and having university-based venture vehicles and partnership with other venture vehicles makes a lot of sense. In closing, is there any advice you would give our listeners who are currently in academic medicine? Maybe they're a trainee, maybe they're faculty, maybe they're a research assistant working in a lab. What might they do to help foster innovation? Build critical mass. Reach out for like-minded people. Grow the community. One of the great advantages of the Academic Medical Center is that we're embedded and integrated within the larger campus. The possibilities for for innovation become sort of limitless. So build your community, find mentorships, seek opportunities. Don't be afraid of risk. So, you know, innovation is like your mom that says, dream, my child, dream big. And Entrepreneurship is like your dad after you graduate from college that says you can't live in the basement. It's not an either-or proposition, and a lot of this is like a no-cost thing. It's really just viewing it differently, giving a little more urgency to the problem. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and inspiring message. And to our listeners, follow up with me on Twitter at Reed Omri to share how you might promote innovation amongst your academic medical center. Stay tuned for our next episode of Innovation Activists next month. I'm Reed Omery. Thank you for listening.